Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV... This is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Liz Hickox lives in Newport, Rhode Island, in a postcard-perfect New England cottage by the water with her husband, Brian, and a black lab named Salty. She's an athlete. On any given weekend, you'll probably find her on her bike, training for her next Ironman. She's been a runner for decades, finishing the New York City Marathon a dozen times. But she didn't get on a racing bike until 2015, after she said she'd do this three-day charity ride for breast cancer survivors. I had a very good friend who was a young survivor. She was a mom of about 37, two young kids who was diagnosed in her early 30s. And she would come to me and ask for a donation every year. She would do this ride and I would write a check. And then one year, her friend couldn't participate. And I said, well, when's the ride? And she said, it's in 30 days. And I said, well, I'll do it. And she said, do you have a bike? And I said, no. She borrowed her friends. Crashed at the first stop sign I came to. I had no idea how to shift or anything. I remember riding to a hill and found some guy in stretchy shorts and said, could you please help me figure out how to shift this? I don't know how to do this. So I went out and I trained every day for 30 days. She was hooked on both the bike and the organization. She met women who said making the ride was the goal that had gotten them through chemo. She saw how they drew strength from this shared accomplishment, even if they could only make it a few miles. The whole experience was honestly life-changing. And I said to Brian, I said, you've got to do this. This was a really important event, and I couldn't feel more strongly that, you know, you need to take part in it. And then the next year he did. 
In late September 2018, a streak of tendonitis sidelined her for the breast cancer ride. So she volunteered to help at the rest stops where women would take breaks for water and snacks. Everyone's patting each other on their back, saying, you got this, this is incredible. People are singing and cheering, you know, saying, oh my gosh, you know, that was so hard or that was so easy. As the day was winding down, another cyclist came up to Liz and asked her a favor. There's a young woman that's coming in, and she's at the end of the pack. And she's missed all of the photographers, and it's her first ride. And we'd really like to get her picture. Would you mind snapping a picture for her? And I remember she said she has a pink sock and she has a green sock on. The woman said the rider's name was Sarah, and she'd recently been diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. And that she hadn't even told her husband yet. Her husband was away overseas. He was a pilot, and she had gotten the news while he was away on this particular trip. During this event, she had gotten the news that her cancer had progressed. And she just didn't know how she was going to tell him. Liz felt for Sarah. About 20 minutes later, a woman with mismatched socks came riding by. She had flown past me and gone into the rest stop. And I said, oh my gosh, you must be Sarah. I said, can you do me a favor? I said, can you go back out, turn around and ride back in? Because I had one job and that was to get your picture. <laughs> and she laughed and she did. And she, she came back in and I snapped her photo. And I said, what's your number? I'm going to text it to you. As the months passed, their friendship grew, with message exchanges quickly ballooning from one a day to sometimes a hundred or more. Sarah did have a way of quickly turning a casual text feed into an emotional avalanche. The following spring, Sarah told Liz there was a more immediate threat to her life even than cancer. A stalker, someone obsessed with her good-looking husband. She said that she was smitten with her husband and that she was sending him messages saying that after Sarah was gone, they'd be together. And that she was saying to Sarah, you're not pretty enough for him. This hit Liz hard. She had told Sarah that when she was 19, a classmate of hers had been killed by a stalker. Over the course of the next 48 hours or so, Sarah would tell me, I'm at the gym. Oh my gosh, she's outside. She's, I can see her parked out there. She's looking at me. She even sent Liz a video when she was trying to dodge her. She's wearing a scarf wrapped around her head and glistening with sweat while she's at the gym. Sarah's out of breath, but her voice is confident, even defiant. I'm not going to let her take this away from me. I'm bigger than that. So for 48 hours, she had me wrapped in this web of drama, of high intensity with this stalker who was now attacking my friend, who I thought was already under attack of a terminal illness. I couldn't breathe. I, my chest was heavy. The next day, Sarah told Liz she wanted to FaceTime with her as she walked out of a Walmart. And she said, Liz, she's there. I said, what do you mean? And said, she's there between the cars by my car. What do I do? I said, you need to run into the store. And so she ran into the store, and she said, oh my God, she has a gun. The phone went dead for more than a minute, with Liz frantic on the other end. Then she got a text. And she said, they got her. Seven people were shot. She said, I took a bullet in the knee. Sarah told Liz she was in an ambulance. 
A couple of days later, to get more details about the shooting, Liz's husband, Brian, called up a friend in law enforcement, a guy named Tom. And as I'm talking on the phone, I said, oh, wait, you know what? I've never actually Googled Sarah's name. I should probably do that. He typed Sarah Delashman into the search bar. I said, holy shit, Tom. I'm Laura Beale. You're listening to Sympathy Pains. This is episode three, Liz. Liz and Brian are one of those couples who actually found true love in a bar. In the biggest pickup bar you could ever meet in Wellington, Florida. It was April of 2005. Liz is an equestrian, and she was in Florida competing at a horse show. I was leaving to go home to Rhode Island the next day, literally less than 12 hours later, and he had just arrived in Florida. He was the only guy there that, you know, probably had a pickup truck and a yellow lab, and I was definitely the only girl there in a baseball hat and jeans. (laughs) He um, vaguely reminded me of Kenny Chesney, and that was a good thing at that point in my life. (laughs) She was a New York City native who had left the city for good after 9-11. He was working in Florida for Merrill Lynch. He came up for a couple of dates in Newport, and he said, you know what, I could really live here. And then literally after three dates, I said to him, you, you, can, you can be my boyfriend if you want, but you have to move here. <laughs> and he did. They married after dating for about a year and a half and ended up founding a financial services business together in Rhode Island. Every winter, they relocate to a rented bungalow in Florida, just a mile from shore on the intercoastal waterway. You pretty much wake up every day and... Love our life. Back in the fall of 2018, after the bike ride where she met Sarah, Liz started noticing Sarah's posts on the organization's private Facebook group. Pictures of herself sitting in what looked like um, a hospital bed with tubes running and taped to her shirt, wearing a cancer scarf with, you know, a thumbs up or so. A lot of times she would have headphones on. And she would say, you know, getting, getting the juice today, looking for prayers and support, you know, going in for a scan today, you know, wish me luck. They touched me because I knew of her as a young mom whose husband was away, who was battling stage four cancer. And I felt completely helpless. I, it's something that spoke to me. For several weeks after the bike ride, Liz would write messages of support under the photos. Christmas time came. One day in December, Liz pulled a handful of holiday envelopes out of her mailbox and found a card from Sarah. A photo card of perhaps nine photos of a little girl with one of those giant bows on her head. And she had little white socks on and black patent, white or black patent leather shoes, like little girl shoes. And that was the Christmas card from Sarah, James, and Bindi, her 14-month-old daughter. And I thought, oh, how cute. And I saved it. And shortly thereafter, probably literally days later, Brian and I left for Florida for the winter. We pack up our house. We head down south. We take our office. We take our dog, and we literally kind of move our work home life for a couple of months during the winter. In January, Liz got a message from Sarah through Facebook Messenger. 
It said her cancer had progressed and she had tumors in her liver and brain. After that, Liz and Sarah began exchanging notes almost every day. As soon as someone messages me, I feel like I have to get right back to them or they're going to be insulted or hurt in some way. So, I'm, you know, I would respond, which would prompt another response from her and lots of conversations. And they're starting to get more regular at this point. And we were you know, just talking about life and her chemo and her treatment. Weeks of message exchanges drew them closer. As Sarah underwent grueling treatments, Liz wrote encouragement. You got this. And she started calling Sarah sister friend, tried to make her feel loved. In February of 2019, Sarah said she was going to be in Southern Florida, that she worked as a flight attendant, which allowed her easy travel. She wanted to visit Liz and Brian, saying, I'm going to take a chance here, and I'm going to drive up, and I'm going to see you. And part of me was like, wow, you know, she trusts me enough. That's, that's really great. This woman who is, you know, fighting for her life every day values me and trusts me enough and us to come visit us. And I was a little nervous about that, excited and honestly honored. And at that point, it kind of became my duty to make sure she had a wonderful experience. And I, I had to say to her, I said, Sarah, you know, we have a very small cottage here. It's just one bedroom. We don't even have a couch. But Liz's mother, Maggie, a Florida retiree, lived nearby. It was the main reason they headed south every year. So she calls me up and I pick up the phone. Hello. She asked me if she could have a friend of hers who she met on this bike ride come and spend the weekend with us because, after all, she doesn't have enough room in her place. She said, Mom, Sarah is final stage cancer. And as soon as I heard that, my heart dropped, my stomach left, and it was like, oh, Elizabeth, fine, she can come, okay? No problem. So that's where Sarah stayed. She wanted to do a triathlon, and she wanted to be like my daughter, Elizabeth. We thought we were going to give her a life-changing experience in a weekend. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Liz hadn't seen Sarah in person since the bike ride where they met. She arrived wearing a scarf around her head and a wig. Brian, Liz, and Sarah spent the next day cycling around Jupiter Island, a perfect Florida winter day with a warm sun and an ocean breeze. Sarah seemed to struggle, but made the ride. We went back to our house, the cottage, and she went back to my parents' house where she was going to go home, you know, shower up, get ready for dinner. I think she said she needed to take a nap and call her husband, etc., By now, my mother is completely enchanted with her. And I I think at this point, Sarah is already calling her mom. My mother is one of the kindest people on this earth and is getting up in the morning before Sarah rides and making sure she has a full breakfast. That evening, Brian and Liz stopped and bought fresh fish. Brian made tacos for dinner. Afterward, they sat in their backyard at the water's edge under the shade of a bishopwood tree. It's a really peaceful place. There's a hammock there. And Sarah sat on the hammock, and she said, this is now my happy place. I remember giving her a margarita thinking, oh my gosh, is this okay? Can I do this? And candidly, I needed that margarita myself so much because the stress was so great about you have someone's life in your hands. You know, this woman is battling a terminal illness, and here I am giving her a margarita. Is is it okay? They sipped their cocktails and talked about life and death. I remember she said to me, I don't want to be forgotten. 
I was sitting in kind of a beach chair, and I looked over at the one of the palm trees that's by the water, and I thought, oh my goodness, forgotten. Like, just imagine being a young mom, a wife, and thinking, two years from now, people might not remember me. That just really got me. Monday morning came. Time for Sarah to leave. Liz and Brian had to work. As Sarah left, they stood in front of the house and posed for pictures, the three of them and the dog. We all had our arms around each other. You know, we literally hugged her like we didn't know if we were going to see her again. It was very emotional. I remember her tears. You know, um, she started to cry. And I mean, I know know, Lizzie did, and I would have had at least a teardrop. Sarah got in her rented car and drove off. We are just honestly exhausted from caring about her, from talking, from crying, worrying. And we sat in the backyard and thought, oh my gosh, I'm just exhausted. And then around 5 p.m. that evening, we got a text. A text from her saying, guess what, guys? My flight was canceled. I'm coming back. We can have fish tacos again. And honestly, at that moment, I looked at Brian and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if, if I can, <laughs> I don't know if I have the energy, you know, but we, but we have to do this. Sarah stayed the extra night. The next weekend, Liz's mom was doing a triathlon. That week, Brian got a text from Sarah saying, Hey, I'd, I'd like to come down this weekend to cheer on mom. And you know, I said, I fully understand. I mean, obviously, mom has given, you know, a lot to, to Sarah. And, and I thought that was very nice. It was probably, what, six o'clock or so in the morning on the day of the race. And I, I knew that Sarah was on her way. But he didn't mention anything to Liz or her mom. He wanted Sarah's second visit to be a surprise. I remember putting my mom's bike helmet on her, like strapping it on her. And I just thought the irony, like here I am putting my mom's bike helmet on, like she's my kid. You know, she's 77 years old. And someone tapped me on the shoulder from behind me. And lo and behold, who's there but Sarah? Sarah had flown in the night before, stayed in a hotel in Fort Lauderdale, and drove up from Fort Lauderdale to Stewart to be there at 6 o'clock in the morning to be at my first triathlon. Elizabeth had made T-shirts for me, and on the back of the T-shirt, it said, T-Megs, T for team, Megs, M-A-G-S, for Maggie. And you know who also had the same T-shirt? Sarah. Maggie was touched. She must really adore Elizabeth to do something like that, and she doesn't think too badly of me either. It's just, you know, heck, I can't even get my husband to get up at six in the morning to, to go to marathons with me. So there was another Sarah weekend. The bikes, the hammock, tacos. We just took her out solely on the boat to see the flying fish. That Saturday night, sitting on the couch with Maggie's Chihuahua Pedro in her lap, Sarah calmly talked about a stalker that was after her. You felt sorry for this girl with the stalker after and dying of cancer and with the the wig and this and all that. And all she was trying to do was do a, a triathlon before she died. 
Sensing that Sarah was working her way deeper into the family, Brian made it clear to Sarah that she absolutely could not come for a third weekend in a row. My father was coming in for a visit with his, uh, his girlfriend at the time, and next weekend, you, just, you, can't, you can't come. You know, not that we're even making plans for it, but just like we can't have a, like, a surprise. But this was Sarah. Sarah was full of surprises. The last weekend in February 2019 was a family gathering for Liz and Brian. Brian's dad was visiting. They went fishing in the boat that anchors just off their backyard. They caught a tuna and came back to the dock. I just had put the fish down, and that's when she walked in the backyard, and I'll just never forget the, hi, guys. And I looked up, and I saw her, and I did not say a word. I just kind of walked past her. I walked to the house and I took a moment and Lizzie came in a minute or so later and, and she kind of yelled at me and she said, you, you can't be rude like that. And I said, I'll be fine. I just, I just need a minute. She was not welcome for the weekend, but I'm not going to say anything. And so she spent the weekend, you know, with me and my father and us. And She crashed our family reunion in every way. But they made the best of it. And by this time, she's gotten to be one of the family. Pedro looks for her. When Sarah pulled up to the house, Maggie noticed something different about her rental car. It had a bike rack and strapped to it. It was a beautiful bike. It looked like it was brand new. I think it was maroon. And they're not cheap, these marathon bikes. Brian and Liz made it clear in the starkest of terms, that she could not come back for yet another weekend, telling her, much as we'd love to see you next weekend, I really need to focus. I haven't seen any of my friends or family. I haven't been able to do any work. I I have my own races I need to trade for. Next weekend, I need just to catch up. I've been the worst friend. I I haven't seen my parents alone. They told Sarah they had plans. A good friend was getting married. I've missed all of the bridal things that my dear friend needs me to do. I need this weekend to myself. But Sarah burrowed into Liz's life anyway. It was early March 2019 when Liz first started getting messages about her stalker. Sarah wrote, I'm hiding in the bathtub. I can't afraid to leave my house. And then from Sarah's husband, James messaging me when she's not saying she's having a panic attack. You're the only person that can talk to her. She'll only listen to you. For two days, Liz was sucked into the vortex of Sarah in trouble, culminating with the shooting at an Illinois Walmart. I'm absolutely exhausted because it's been 48 hours of the stalker chasing her, following her, threatening her, and now, you know, chasing her down to the Walmart and showing up with a gun after her and there's shots fired. I'm exhausted. I just can't even believe what just happened. But something about it struck Brian as off. We, you know, starting to, to of course, look for any record of a shooting at, at a Walmart in, you know, in Illinois where seven people are shot. Like, you're going to see something in the news. And nothing was in the news and we found that to be strange. Sarah had an explanation. She said the FBI was trying to keep it quiet, that they had told her to go to the store to lure the stalker out. 
What she didn't know was that Liz and Brian had a friend with FBI connections, their friend Tom. Our friend, you know, openly laughed. He's like, that's not how it works. He made a quick call to the local station there, and they said, no, there's, there hasn't been a shooting here. You know, maybe, maybe not ever. And that is when Brian began to ask a question, a question that many people had asked before him and would ask later. Who is Sarah DeLashman? Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was March 7th, 2019. 
Brian Hickox was on his phone in the backyard, pacing. After learning from his law enforcement friend that there had been no Walmart shooting, Brian Googled Sarah's name on his phone. He clicked on the first hit. The first article that came up was that there's a record of Sarah losing her nursing license in the state of Virginia. The document was from almost five years earlier, dated July 24th, 2014. Sarah was living in Virginia. That's where she met Naomi, the college student who tried to support her through miscarriages and an abusive boyfriend. The Virginia Nursing Board was pulling Sarah's license because they learned that she had lost her license in the state of Oklahoma earlier that year. Documents said that Sarah was working as a nurse in the neonatal intensive care unit at Oklahoma University Medical Center in the fall of 2012. During that time, over a period of about four months, she started stuffing pillows under her clothes so she would look pregnant. She showed her co-workers copies of an ultrasound of twins. And then, at some point, she said she had delivered the twins prematurely and they had died. The report also said it was the second time she had faked a pregnancy as a nurse. In her testimony to the nursing board, she said she pretended to be pregnant to make friends, that she'd seen how much support women got when they lost a baby. Faced with the discipline that could result from a formal hearing, she surrendered her Oklahoma nursing license on May 20th, 2014. If she wanted to get her license back, the board recommended a psychiatric evaluation. Standing under the Bishopwood tree, staring at his phone, Brian was astonished. I walked back into the house and I said, Lizzie, do not contact Sarah again. I don't know really what's up, but she's not who she says she is. And we don't need to be communicating you know, with her. I don't believe that the shooting actually happened. I don't think that you know anything happened. She looked at him with a confused stare that said, what are you talking about? I was not really even even to process it. I was still literally in shock for probably 48 hours after that. I mean, I was on empty. I had had, you know, four days of really heavy, exhausting emotion. Then Brian remembered the text with James, Sarah's supposed husband. They'd been corresponding since Sarah's second visit. But I'd already been thinking that James was not real. You know, it was three weekends in a row that she was coming down to Florida. Like, that, you know, you want to leave a legacy for your daughter. You wouldn't be wanting to leave your daughter. First, he tried an oblique approach. Sarah had told Liz and Brian that her husband was an MMA fighter. So Brian sent a message to James. Hey, I'm a big fan of UFC. How do I find your fights? When that didn't get a response, he just said outright. I said, hey, man, I, I need you to give me a call right now. James, of course, never answered. James was Sarah. Sarah was James. Nothing was real. They realized they needed to break the news to Liz's mom. It was certainly a hard call to have to make. You need to make sure that the security guards take her off the list. I was like, oh my God, we better change the code on the garage. I thought that maybe she just might try to break in the house or do something. At this point, it's like, who's not to say she's going to open the door and walk in and kill us? Snippets of conversations that once seemed benign, at least in the context of her stalker, now took on new importance, like how to cut brake lines. 
How to make a death look like an accident, how to hide a body. Those are not things that normally come to someone's thoughts. So the fact that she had these thoughts and shared them with us, I'm like, wow, these are things that are on her mind. She told us one day when she was claiming to have a daughter that she dropped off in childcare at the Y, she said, you know, it'd be so easy for anyone to steal a toddler here. She goes, I show up and I pick up my daughter and, you know, the 16-year-old girl doesn't even look up from her iPad. Any of these children could be stolen at a moment's notice. That was really disturbing. They call the police, not really knowing who else to call. They grew more fearful. Officers warned us to be, you know, you can get a level of protection so that we will know if she leaves the state. Again, no one knew at that point. No one knew. I was terrified. Brian began frantically scouring the internet, trying to find out as much as he could. And that's when Brian got really busy just messaging everyone he could possibly find. Brian began turning up multiple Facebook profiles with variations on her name and different photos. He hunted through the comments and tags for people who knew her. One of them turned out to be her aunt. Brian sent her a message. She responded to my my messenger, uh, you know, my message saying, you know, yes, I'm, I'm her aunt and I'd like to know what she's up to. It was definitely a, uh, what she's up to, here we go again, this is not the first time. Liz gave Sarah's aunt a call. She was really distraught, actually, to hear the news said that she'd been at it for years and that the family was really torn apart about it. She told us about Aaron in California, and that was really upsetting. She told them Sarah didn't have cancer, never had cancer, and she didn't have a child either. And it was also very concerning, you know, the, the pictures of the baby. It's the same baby in different situations, different, you know, different poses, definitely different, you know, environments. The baby is a mystery, and it seems to be the same baby in every picture. Sarah's aunt told them what had happened in Texas at Camp Summit. I called the camp as well, and the girl that answered the phone, um, again, I said, my name is, you know, Brian, and, and this is what's going on. It might sound a little bit strange. And she actually, you know, laughed to herself. She said that we were just in training on this yesterday. And as Brian searched for more information on Camp Summit, he found one other person tagged in Sarah's pictures, Bethany Turner. He sent Bethany a message over Facebook saying, Here's what's been going on in our lives. And this is what we've been told. And and we understand it not to be true. And, you know, what has your experience been? The next morning, Bethany saw the message. She recoiled at the sight of Sarah's name. I was brushing my daughter's teeth and looked down and saw something on my phone, and I I threw the phone down on the counter, and I was like, nope, not doing that. She thought it was Sarah herself. I wasn't sure if it was her trying to catfish me, and I finally landed on, you know what, maybe I just need to Google this guy and see who he is, because if it's not Sarah, then it's someone that Sarah's hurt. It was early in the morning, I remember that, maybe 5.30 or so, where I, I heard the messenger go off. And then normally I might sleep through that uh, kind of thing, but not at that point in time. And she said something not dismissive, but maybe uh, questioning who I was or, or, you know, what happened. And it didn't take more than a couple of minutes, I guess, to, for her to say, okay, you know, I'd be up for a, for a phone call. That call would be the first of many. Brian and Liz soon learned that Sarah was back in Florida, 
They had helped her train for a triathlon, and she was actually going to do it. The event was just a couple of miles away. And at that moment, I was never more scared. Do you remember Alfred Hitchcock movies where your hair's standing on the head because, oh my God, that woman's going to open the door while you're in the bathtub in the shower and she's got a knife? She's liable to do anything if she could do what she did. Liz and Brian couldn't believe she was back in Florida, almost in their backyard. They decided to go to the race, putting on hoodies and sunglasses and ducking behind palm trees, waiting for her to go by. Once they saw her, their jaws dropped. She was wearing all new gear. New helmets, new sunglasses, new shoes, everything. Everything that's identical to mine. Everything. And I was so unbelievably freaked out. It was really creepy and, you know, everything, right down to the sunglasses and the way she did her hair. There were so many facets to the emotions that we had. You know, one is, you know, you're pissed off, as Brian said. You know, we've just been completely taken advantage of. One is humiliated and, you know, one is fearful. You know, fearful for our safety because we didn't know, you know, where she draws the line. And then over the course of a few days, we also developed a compassion. How can we turn this into something productive? How can we make our horrible experience have a, a good ending, you know, for her, right? If she really is sick and unable to get help, certainly for all the potential victims, all the former victims, you know, how can we just fix this? The police had told them there was nothing law enforcement could do. It's not a crime to fake cancer. Like, we feel terrible about what happened to you. But what she's doing isn't a crime. And that just didn't sit with us. Liz also felt for Sarah's aunt. She was very kind. She told me the family was just, you know, at wit's end. This has, you know, wrecked them in so many ways. I thought if there were mandated help, treatment, that might help in some way. And that was our thoughts, was that if the family can't afford to do it, We've got to find a way to get this done. I didn't want to go to her employer because then, you know, her aunt had told me if she lost her job that the family would lose the house. I couldn't afford to pay for any kind of extended treatment for her, but I knew that this television personality offered people help. And I thought, wow, I'll just call Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil. Today on an all-new Dr. Phil. That Dr. Phil. I went to his website and it says, do you want to be on the show? And it said, tell us your story. You know, if we're interested, we'll give you a call. So I wrote a pretty pretty detailed story about what was going on. And they asked Bethany if she would join them. I don't think I'd ever watched a Dr. Phil episode in my life. But she didn't want Sarah to hurt anyone else. Ever since she'd learned about Sarah walking out of Camp Summit. I knew that at some point it was going to resurface because I knew she was doing it other places. If I can... Google her and find trails of her from Oklahoma to Texas to Illinois to out east. I mean, there was no way she was going to stop. I just didn't have the capacity at that point to deal with it. I told them, I said, we've got to get this out on a broader scale. This needs to be a viral story because otherwise we're just going to end up chasing Sarah from town to town, from nonprofit to nonprofit. Bethany agreed that national television might be the only way that they could get help for Sarah and maybe keep her from hurting anyone else. And along the way, they found one more woman who was ready to join them. I said, hey, how do you know her? And she said, I've been tracking her for 20 years. 
And eventually, they found the one person who could finally stop Sarah. I think my reaction was probably the same as as most people that first hear about this case. There's just kind of disbelief about what happened. That's on the next episode of Sympathy Pains. Sympathy Pains is a production of Neon Hum Media and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Laura Beale. I wrote and reported the episodes. Natalie Wren is the lead producer. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Associate producer is Rufaro Mazarua. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Fact checker is Jacqueline Coletti. Jesse Pearlstein composed the theme song and music heard throughout the series. Additional tracks are by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Scott Somerville is our engineer and sound designer. Special thanks to Stephanie Serrano. From iHeartRadio, special thanks to Carrie Lieberman and Bethann Macaluso. Executive producer at iHeartRadio is Dylan Fagan. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.